Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for November 2017. I am writer hyphen digitally removed mustache Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Hello, I'm Rochelle Semenovich. I am writer hyphen film critic hyphen trigger warning and this week our very special guest is... Emma Westwood. I am writer hyphen film critic. I'm almost you. (laughs) <laughs> so far, hyphen swing dancer, hyphen horror lover, hyphen crazy cat girl, hyphen... Yeah, I'm just going on. I could keep on going on forever, but I won't. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, go on for at least an hour. That's okay, all right. With uh, the hyphens. <laughs> exactly. No, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, uh, yeah, as always, we're going to start by uh, talking about some of the films we've seen this month. What have we seen, Michelle? Okay, so our first film this week is Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. It's an intense and angry portrait of police brutality and racism during the race riots of 1967. The story is based on the notorious Algiers Motel incident where a group of young, mostly black people were beaten, tortured and in three cases killed by white police. Lee, did this film make you angry? And more importantly, did it make sense? Did it make sense? Mm. Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, it, it did make me angry. You know, one thing I really love about the current phase that Bigelow is going through is all of her films now seem to be ripped from the headlines. And this one I went into thinking, it's ripped from the 1960s headlines. But of course, it's not, because it's as much about today as it is, mm. you know, 50 years ago. So, uh, yeah, it does, it does make you angry knowing that this stuff went on and knowing that it's still going on, because she shoots it in such a visceral, evocative way that you cannot help but, but feel like you're there in the moment. Mm. And you want to get out of there. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the cinema was air-conditioned, so I was happy to stay there. <laughs> yeah, more broadly, going digging a bit deeper, yeah. What about you, Emma? Well, apart from needing to go to the toilet at about the two-hour mark, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a really big fan of Near Dark. I really like Blue Steel as well and uh, Strange Days. So, and, and even Point Break, the early Catherine Bigelow style is very different to what she's fallen into now. I think she's fallen into her kind of Oscar-winning style of filmmaking. Whether she's happy to do so or not, she's sort of stuck in that now and I think that's going to be the rest of her career. For some reason, that makes me feel a little bit sad because I think she's such a good storyteller. She can do anything, really. Um, She is that good a storyteller. But the the Hurt Locker really left me cold, so I didn't see Zero Dark Thirty, which I believe is in the similar um, style, and the kind of crazy shaky cam I thought was going to really get to me right at the start of Detroit. But I like the way it sort of corralled around that one event and that became sort of this moment, this tension that, you know, you, 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 know, you just built up around this, this one event. And, I mean, you know, it's really kind of a sensationalist event, so forth, but it did work for me once it got to that. Mm. Um, I don't know whether the setup was really that great really that clear. Mm. A setup of some sorts was necessary, but I don't think this was the, the, the one. It was an infuriating film. It was a button-pushing film. But overall, I thought it was a great experience. Hard to say to enjoy it because you came out... We kind of had to have um, a moment's silence after watching the film just to kind of mm. decompress from it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. What do you think, Rochelle? Look, I'm not a huge fan of this film. I found it quite confusing. I felt there was so much going on. There were so many characters, so many 
black characters who weren't properly differentiated and mm. so that the brutal white policeman played by Will Poulter, Poulter yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's the most sort of powerful and memorable character and the others just sort of... I don't know, it felt like confused storytelling. I mean, the screenplays by journalist turned screenwriter Mark Boll, who also wrote The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. And so it's got that sort of like, yeah, taken from the headlines, this is a real political kind of um, true story. But maybe she needs to just move away from that and go back to entertaining us. Uh, I'd say yes. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm happy. I like this. You like I it. like what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, like as much as I love Near Dark, I could name a lot of directors who I think could nail that film. I can't think of many directors who would do what she's doing at the moment as well. Like, there's something about the way she looks at the banality of evil and the la- unsentimental, unmawkishness of heroism that that I find quite refreshing in, mm. in her current films. So, yeah. Well, also uh, this month uh, is Murder on the Orient Express. It's uh, perhaps the most famous Agatha Christie novel in which her Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot, must solve a train-based murder in which everyone appears to have a strong motive. Uh, the new film is directed by Kenneth Branagh, who also plays Poirot, and much like Sidney Lumet's uh, 74 adapt- adaptation, uh, this is a star-filled affair with Michelle Pfeiffer, Johnny Depp, Judy Dench and Penelope Cruz amongst the passengers. So I, I think there's a real quaintness to the fact that this film even exists. I think, you know, we haven't seen a lot of murder mysteries recently, and I think part of that is that television has taken over this type of storytelling, and we rarely see that sort of uncinematic... I mean, this looks very cinematic, it's beautifully shot, but anything that is almost a single location type, uh, we just don't see uh, big-budget films like that anymore. So it's, it's kind of strange that this film exists, and, and as a result, it sort of feels like a weirdly compelling warm blanket a throwback to classic Hollywood, I guess. Yeah, I think of it... I don't know if this is a very nice way to describe it, but it's kind of an old lady movie, mm. you know? And why shouldn't <laughs> old ladies have pretty polished, luxurious films to watch? But it, it's... It's like, why are we... I don't know, it feels doesn't really feel like it fits with the current landscape of, you know, what we're being offered at the cinema. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's why it's doing so well, because it fills a gap. But I did find it a little bit dull. I mean, it was a Branner fest. It was a, a moustache fest, that yeah. double, triple, quadruple, whatever layered moustache that he had on his face. At least two moustaches. It, <laughs> it was crazy. And they made a point of, you yeah. know, playing up on that. But also the direction. I mean, you know, that whole idea of filming in cramped quarters, but he just constantly moved outside the walls mm. and on top of the walls and around the tracks and just went crazy, like directed the arse out of it. it. was a bit distracting at certain times, but I did like the overhead crime scene stuff. Yeah, yeah. That felt very crime mm. and I liked it. Like it, it felt like police observational imagery or something like that and coming into the crime scene. Yeah. That was probably... The, the bit where I felt it really popped. But otherwise, eh, it's okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, like, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I think a lot of that to, was to do with lowered expectations. Like, it's, I was obsessed with reading Agatha Christie when I was a kid, and this always struck me as the most absurd. It's like it's the silliest book she's ever written. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think it's got the most memorable title, which is why it's a best-known book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Our next film uh, is quite a departure. It's The Killing of a Sacred Deer, the second English-language film from Greek writer-director Yorgos Lanthimos, who gave us The Lobster in 2015. 
A similar weird, unsettling tone infuses this highly original psychological thriller. The title comes from the Greek tragedy of Agamemnon, who was forced to make an impossible choice after making a fatal mistake. Here, Colin Farrell plays a middle-aged heart surgeon with a lovely family, including Nicole Kidman as his wife, and that's threatened when a fatherless teenage boy, played by Barry Keon, starts to insinuate himself and make creepy demands. Lee, are you a Lanthimos lover? I, a lover, maybe. I, 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 I've been a fan since Dogtooth, and I think he has a habit of making films where the first half is like an all-timer, where you're like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen, <laughs> and the second half is merely great. Yeah, maybe, look, I am a fan, and, uh, but, but Sacred Deer certainly continued that trend. Yeah. Uh, still one of my favourite films of the year, I think, but um, it, was, it was so... It just fell short of greatness, I think. Yeah, it felt like he set up this funny, creepy, weird premise and then didn't quite know how to bring it off in a really interesting or emotionally effective way. Mm. It wasn't funny, it wasn't moving, it was just nothing at the end for me. Mm. But there's no denying this is like stylish filmmaking. Mm. What Mm. about you, Emma? Yeah, I love Lanthimos. (laughs) I'm a Lanthimos lover. But he is very much a director that I feel you could... A lot of people would argue that it's more style over substance, but I do feel like the style in Lanthimos's case, and this is, you know, this is style. You know, he has an edge of pretension. We can't pretend that's not the case. But... um, it really informs the storytelling. Like, the style is part of the story and there was something about how these characters were so emotionally cut off and removed and stilted and mannered that was um, really important to the storyline mm. because they they just didn't seem to be human at times. Mm. And I think that was playing on the man as God man, I say, in the broad term of, you know, humankind as God, um, because I think Nicole Kidman as his wife and the ophthalmologist was very much that character as well, you know, who they seemed to think they were above everything. And this Mm. was that kind of, uh, the film was basically a humbling of that. Um, But, you know, I love bunny boiler films, and this is essentially a bunny boiler stalker film, really, Mm. when it comes down to it. Did you find it distracting that each frame had the words "I love you, Stanley Kubrick" imprinted? <laughs> uh, like I was, I was like trying to see past the text. Uh, <laughs> it's not quite that bad. It was but, um, subliminal. It was. It's, it, a, it's it, a tribute. It's like oh yeah. It actually and it, it actually works as a spiritual sequel to Eyes Wide Shut. It I does. Think. Yes. Like Nicole Kidman married to a doctor. Yes. And the whole psychosexual thing going on. Although, yeah. although I think that Lanthimos understands sex better than Kubrick. I don't know how Kubrick actually managed to have children. (laughs) His films are very unusual sexually. And uh, this is unusual sexually, but still I think he has more of an idea of human sexuality than Themos. Anyway. I thought it was really interesting, you know, um, spoiler alert, guys, if you haven't seen this film, but Colin Farrell has to decide which of his family members is going to be sacrificed and... His wife and him, the parents, never think that it should be her mm. and that yes. they should put themselves before their children, yeah. which is, you know, quite 
transgressive in today's you oh, know, yeah. atmosphere and I think of parenting. There was, there was an alarming line where I think that, did it come from Colin Farrell when he said, you're young, we can have another child? <laughs> yes, yeah. something exactly. like that. This idea of the disposability of these children. <laughs> but maybe also showed the selfishness of those characters, you know, and that unemotionality. I think there are probably people that would maybe make that decision. I mm. mean, you know, it, the overriding, I think, majority of people, especially, you know, people who have had children, I have so I can't comment in that way, but is anything for your child, mm. you just sacrifice. Take a bullet for your child, exactly. that's what you're supposed to you say. Take, yeah. You'll take a bullet for your child, so that's the alarming thing. This is a really, I think there was this was a really queasy film too. It had a lot of quite confronting imagery, even at the start with that heart surgery, the open heart surgery, but that wasn't the queasiness for me. That was more when the, the sicknesses came on and there mm. was a debilitation through the sickness that for some reason it just turned them into like amphibious creatures that was, it really actually turned my stomach. And I watched a lot of very Mm. brutal movies and this film kind of got me a little palm sweaty, really. you got kids dragging themselves around half paralysed up and down stairs. It's like... It's really confronting. Yeah. Well, onto something more disturbing. Um, <laughs> now, you guys have not seen uh, Ju- Justice League, have you? Uh, are, are we really going to regret not having seen Justice League? Uh, uh, well, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you what I thought, and then uh, and then you can decide. All right. So, Justice League is the long-awaited team-up of DC's biggest characters: uh, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Aquaman, and Cyborg. Apparently, come together to fight some big alien invasion thing that's apparently about to take place. That is not only the setup to the film; it is the entire synopsis in all of its detail and nuance. <laughs> I've included every surprise and every twist, every piece of drama, and every bit of character development. It's interesting because the plot actually involves them trying to resurrect Superman because they decide they need him, uh, and it's appropriate it feels like it's been Frankensteined together from a bunch of different but equally bad films. It's like, imagine the dramatic impetus of, you know, the YouTube autoplay function where it'll just play a new clip mm. if you don't do anything. Uh, it's pretty much just a series of disconnected moments careening haphazardly into one another. It I, sounds <laughs> wonderful. It's amazing. It, it's just, I mean, I, I don't know how they keep getting these films so wrong. Like, with the exception of Wonder Woman, which, you know, some people love, some people hate, but was not the disaster of Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, Suicide Squad, and this. It's just there's no... like the, I mean, the villain has no character. His intentions are the generic, gonna-take-over-the-world type thing. The heroes have no character. Um, Flash does, but he's too broadly drawn to make any impact. He, he's a series of gurning reactions and unnatural one-liners, and in any other film, he'd be the worst thing about it, and here he is grudgingly the best. Um, <laughs> Like, the, the threat is introduced, like, out of the blue. The sudden impetus to get the team together is devoid of drama, and yet it... I've never seen a film rush itself and take forever to get anywhere. It's the most incredible mix of these two disparate ideas, and I don't know, it, it feels like, a, like what a computer program thinks would look good in a trailer. I think, yeah, good films happen when a good director knows what they're doing. I would argue that good franchises happen when a good producer knows what they're doing. Disastrous franchises happen when studios realise they have an IP and they have to rush to exploit it. (laughs) This show, by the nature of let's pick a filmmaker and talk about all their works, we believe in auteur theory and we've acknowledged that auteurs can be directors, writers, producers uh, or even studios, I think. 
Um, here I would say the auteur is, I believe, um, focus groups made up of more <laughs> shoppers getting their day drunk on. Um, <laughs> that's the only... Anyway. <laughs> well, I, the, I'd so. say in the spirit of sacred of a killing deer... Uh, killing deer, do you like that? <laughs> uh, killing of a sacred deer, that you have actually... We're your children and you've taken the bullet for us, so thank you very much, Lee. <laughs> I like the way you did that. <laughs> <laughs> The biggest news in the film world recently has been the stories of rape and harassment that have begun as a trickle and become a veritable king tide of stories and confessions pouring out of Hollywood about the systemic ongoing abuses of power at every level. It arguably began with Ronan Farrow's article in The New Yorker about Harvey Weinstein's alleged rape and assault of seemingly every woman he comes into contact with and has continued with stories about everyone from Kevin Spacey to Louis C.K. We are in the early stages of what we hope is a, is a proper sea change and the good news is that we are about to, in the space of 10 minutes, discuss and then resolve the whole thing in a way that won't upset anyone. <laughs> no, no, no. We've, we've completely got it sorted, kids. We do. <laughs> so I honestly think we could talk for hours and hours about this. Uh, so I want to try and define the scope of this topic as best we can. So in the next segment, we're going to be talking about the films of Roman Polanski, who was famously convicted of raping a minor and he has had many more allegations levelled against him since. He is also the director of canonised cinematic classics and the question we've been asking for decades and the one that seems more pertinent in today's moment is can we separate the art from the artist? Emma, you picked Polanski. I feel like I want to put, put you on the spot, shine the spotlight on you, and uh, I'm going to sit back while uh, you take this. Thank you. Well, <laughs> yes, when we, we, we actually chose, well, me, I actually chose this topic and discussed it with you, Lee, a year ago. Yeah. My lordy, what has happened in a year's time? This just seems more and more timely. I'm sure Polanski wishes it wasn't so timely. Uh, not only that, we've just had Charles Manson's death just before the time yeah. of recording this podcast. In terms of separating the art and the artist, let me, I'll just simplify it in terms of my take on it, which is I separate the art from the artist. I've chosen Polanski because I think he's, when he's in his top form, he's a genius. He's even a flawed genius in terms of his body of work. Not all of it's great. But when he is in top form, he really is unparalleled in my, in my mind. I came to Polanski's films through just, you know, exploring films as a kid. And these films that I seemed to be liking, I then found were by the same filmmaker. It wasn't a conscious effort to seek out Polanski. Anything that the actual first um, rape that occurred in the 70s was before my time as such. So this had all happened before I started watching Polanski films. I then got more interested in filmmaking, found out more about his story and it all sort of came together. And I find the Polanski story interesting also because I have an interest, I always wanted to study criminology. So I have an interest in this idea of the criminal mind, how people do get to that point. So Polanski's sort of a double whammy in, for me in that way because he, well, he is a criminal. You know, he mm. has um, performed criminal acts and he, you know, it, it, we're not, in talking about him on this show, we're not putting him on trial. That's already been done and that's already been decided and I don't think that there's any grey areas or anything with that. 
but I use terms in this show of him being a genius. I'm talking about him in terms of his professional work and his collaborations with other people. And there are a lot of, as will come out through what we're saying, a lot of people also contributed to these masterpieces, not just Polanski. In saying that, I'm not condoning anything that he has done in his private life. But I feel that this is, this is something that every film commentator has to tackle and you guys will no doubt have your point of view as well because everyone comes at it in a different personal way, mm. you know. Maybe if I had been abused as a child, I would feel differently. I wouldn't be able to watch these films in the same way. Also, Polanski appears in his films, mm. so you get the artist literally in your face, this person in your face. So that can be problematic for other people. Yeah. But I think that this is something that every film reviewer will come in or every film consumer will come into it in a different way and have a different choice to make and all of their choices are valid, really. What's been happening for me throughout this crisis is that I started from a position of we need to separate the artist from their work and I want to be able to watch what I want to watch. I'm very anti-censorship. I think if we look for art that is only made by morally completely clean and blameless people, we're going to have nothing to watch. But through the Me Too campaign and through everything that's come to light, I think attitudes are changing and so too my attitude has changed to the point where maybe if enough people are angry enough and strong enough about not watching the work of particularly men who have done these terrible things then maybe we will get change so I think if anybody wants to not watch you know it's a personal choice if you don't want to watch the films that are made by these people, that's fine. But I feel like it's an interesting question to ask, would we watch Polanski's films if he was dead? Would that be okay? If he's dead, suddenly maybe we could watch his his work mm. the way we consider the, the art of other, you know, dead artists. Well, there are a lot of people who will say things like, I will only watch his films up to Chinatown, for example, because mm. that's after the crime against... Samantha Gaylor, is that her name? I can't remember. The 13-year-old who he raped. That was when the crime occurred after Chinatown. And I find that that's a really unusual way of rationalising it. It's like, oh, I get the really early good stuff, but then he turned into a monster. It's like people don't... It's, he is who he is, you know. Mm. He's always been that. So I don't know. I think it's more that I think people should be punish for the crime through the legal system through the if legal possible. system and yeah you 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 pay the price that if that means you're not making films for 20 years because you're sitting in a jail cell so be it yeah, I've had a lot of complicated, uh, incompatible reactions. My reactions <laughs> keep changing day by day, so it's possible that between the time of recording and this coming out, I may have changed my ideas again. But I struggled with the idea of artists being immoral because art bends towards the moral. Narrative art bends towards moral. You know, Rome Polanski makes The Pianist. Woody Allen makes Husbands and Wives and Matchpoint. Brian Singer makes X-Men, which, you know, is a silly film, but it's all about people making the right choices, whether it's a, a blockbuster or an art house or whatever. I think, why can't you apply that to your own life? Like, how do you make films about people making moral choices and not think about that in your day-to-day -day life? Like, it just seemed it's incredibly naive, I know, but that was why I struggled with artists doing horrible things. Do you know what I think it is, Lee? I think mm. it's um, this idea that we want to think of someone as, if they do something that's morally, what we see morally abhorrent, 
that we just want that to be across the board in their life. But someone who has even done something morally abhorrent has ability to do something that's kind as well. Mm. And this is the this is the conundrum we're in. We we want to just see them as monsters and go that's just that. But someone like Polanski for example is a super intelligent human being and in fact that probably makes it worse. You mm. go well he should really really know better. The thing does with Polanski it, yes it does make <laughs> sense and I mean it's so complex and people are so complicated and complex and why should morality be simple? But the thing about Polanski is that I think that moral greyness and, you know, people making morally questionable decisions is there in his work. He's not someone who's making very simple moral choices in the stories that he tells. They're massively complex. And massively I complex. I don't think I could watch Polanski if he'd been making films about how terrible child abuse is or how terrible rape is and how... If it was kind of like hypocritical... So I think someone said Bill Cosby's crimes are particularly bad because they're so at odds with the moral tenor of his Mm, family-friendly show. Whereas Polanski, it doesn't feel like it's at odds with his grappling with, like, people doing sick stuff. No, I don't know, because I think he's... I mean, you know, there's a scene in Pirates, which isn't, like, a major work of his, but there's a scene in Pirates where we know that a character is a hero because he stops pirates from raping a girl. And not only did I, I wish I hadn't read this, but uh, that actress who is saved is someone Polanski coerced into sex so, and wouldn't give her the role unless yeah. she... Yeah, okay. And, but also... That's, yeah. But even beyond that, you can't even do uh, those simple morality, <laughs> mo- moments of morality, or the complex ones in something like... Let's say Death and the Maiden. Death and the Maiden. Yeah. I was going to jump in on that. Yeah. yeah, but you can't do that without having an understanding of what is quote-unquote correct morality. Like, he can't tell a story about somebody making a difficult choice without understanding that there is a right and a wrong. I think a sociopath would not be able to write that story or direct that story. It bothers me knowing that he must know that because he makes this great art and he understands it on a very complex level. But I, I, think, I think growing up, I watched movies and I took my own morality from the lessons presented in those movies and it's been very difficult to know that the people outside of my family who were teaching me those lessons were profoundly amoral or immoral in so much of their personal lives. Mm, mm. It can be like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a constant conundrum. But I'm like um, Rochelle in what you were saying as well. You, we dig too far. We're going to be in a position where we're not going to be able to see or watch anything, really, because we all have personal morality too that may not be so sanctioned by law. Mm. We might just have things that we ourselves don't agree with. I mean, I'm a huge Jerry Lewis fan. I'm glad I never met Jerry Lewis, yeah. let's just say because I don't want my comfort viewing of the nutty professor ruined by finding out what an asshole Jerry Lewis is. I know he's an asshole, but I just don't want to know that personally and therefore have that colour my experience of the films. And that's, I think we've got to be really careful about wanting to meet or personalising our love of the author mm. and the author. I mean, I think Polanski still has a lot to say in his work, despite the fact that he is obviously an incredibly conflicted and scary man deep, deep down within. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes out through his life that, you know, he's been a victim and he's been the victimizer. He's just been, I think I was listening actually to Karina Longworth, you, you must remember this mm. podcast, and she put it really nicely in terms of that he is a man of complete contrast, having been an integral part of a couple of 
the biggest events of the 20th century and being the victim and the victimizer, mm. being humble and then being the egotist, being he is that full spectrum of stuff. I think that we're lucky that we can get what we can out of his films as a person. There's a whole lot of stuff about whether he's actually done the time for the crime or not. That's mm. up to the legal system they can do. <laughs> now, I leave that alone. I'm a film commentator. That's where I'm going to sit. That's <laughs> probably wise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all evolving in our attitude towards this stuff and we've got to just be gentle with each other for having different points of view and to be having the conversation and, you know, trying to find a better way for us to all watch films and, you know, exist in the world and deal with crimes and it's, you know, I think it's an evolution. Mm. Yeah, and I don't think that... I really think it's not the films that's the problem. It's the film business that's the yeah. problem. And Anytime there's power yeah, is, is a problem because yeah. we're seeing it in politics, we're seeing it in oh. every... And it hasn't even hit the music industry properly yet. Yeah. Let's wait and see what happens there. So yeah. that's where it really needs to be addressed, not in terms of the output, but unfortunately for you know the audiences, that's all we have to work with, which is the, the films themselves. So, Emma, for those tuning in just now, uh, which filmmaker have you chosen for your filmmaker of the month? I have chosen Roman Polanski. Never How heard crazy. of him. crazy. <laughs> I, first of all, I enjoy... Look, I love genre film, but I do love um, filmmakers who aren't just stuck in one genre or who actually can leap across a whole different variety of styles and types of movies. And Roman Polanski is one of those. I think I like the constant surprise that comes with their, their work, but also I'm intrigued in the more darkly psychological inner recesses of the human mind and... Um, Roman Polanski likes to push at those. Um, maybe sometimes he's actually revealing his own dark mind in these in these films. But I do believe that they are very personal, and we've we've discussed a bit about this whole idea of um, the conundrum of talking about monstrous filmmakers. Shall we should we call them the people who've performed morally questionable acts in their life? But it's hard not to talk about the personal because he has even acknowledged himself that there's a very strong personal crossover with him and his own experiences and his films. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, uh, I mean there, there is no denying his place in the canon. You know, you can't make films like Rosemary's Baby or Chinatown or even like Macbeth and recently The Pianist. And he is an undeniable artist. Like, he's, his, his films are remarkable. And for the most part, there are a lot of exceptions, which I'm sure we'll cover. So he was a guy who uh, was born in France but grew up in Poland, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He, he had Polish parents, but he was born in France and they made a terrible error and decided to go back to Krakow, which I believe is where they were initially from, just before the outbreak of World War Two. So they really made a very bad, poor decision there. Not that necessarily Paris was going to be better for them, but... Yes, it was better for them to remain in Paris. So Polanski was, I think, around three or four when they went back and six 
through to 10, 11 were the times when Poland was under Nazi occupation and uh, the Warsaw Ghetto was created, uh, which is all this stuff that we see played out in in the PNS, which is basically Polanski's story, although he was a child rather than an adult at that time. Absolutely heartbreaking story. To think of someone as a child going through that experience, the formative years, I think of how important that time from six to 12 or whatever was for me. So to have to see your mother being taken away, who he, he says in that a film memoir was actually pregnant, he found out when she was taken away and taken to Auschwitz and ultimately died. You, you just can't imagine what the experience would have been. And not only that, but to be constantly taken out of your home, placed in you know communal environments where people are desperately trying to survive basically, and this extreme sense of anxiety and not knowing what's going to happen, and actually to have his father cut the fence and tell him to run away when his father got wind that they were going to clear the ghetto, and he just had to run for his Mm. life as a child and went to the family friends of someone and, you know, even through that situation, even though he was out of the ghetto, faced starvation, blah, 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 all of that sort of thing. I think we can't underestimate how much that has informed these stories we're getting from Polanski. It happened to a lot of people, not just him. Mm. It's just his, in terms of his personality, his artistic intellect, that we have got these, these films. This is weird. The best analysis um, I've heard of his films came from the prosecutor in his trial. And this is in uh, Wanted and Desired, the, the DA who was prosecuting him said he wanted to try and understand him, so he went to see it. He went to a Polanski festival and saw his, a whole bunch of films during the trial. And he said, you know, I, I realised that his films were all about the corruption of innocence over water. You ah. think about Repulsion, uh, Knife in the Water, Chinatown, etc. It was like, of course. Like even, even Cul-de-sac. Yeah, yeah. Cul-de-sac has a big water theme because they're exactly. on the island. Yeah. So this Mormon DA could have become a film critic in another life. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's true, and he got a lot of recognition for that first feature, Knife in the Water, in '62. He but... actually got the Fipresky F- Prize, I think, at right. Venice for that film. But he was also nominated for um, the Academy Awards for it was Poland's nomination for best fo- mm. foreign language film for a debut film. That's incredible. Mm. It's an amazing film too. It I is, mean, it's three people it on a an yacht. Amazingly sophisticated. Yes. Mm psychological film for a debut and what was interesting was that Polanski actually the character the young man who wasn't identified in the film the hitchhiker was overdubbed with Polanski's voice if we want to talk about the personal being brought into here he actually basically made himself that character it's a film of dick swinging really Mm -hmm. it's uh which I found quite fascinating with the the wife character looking totally disinterested and just going about her way on the, you know, you're on the side. I, I loved it. I thought it was an excellent film. It also has um, music by um, Christoph Kameda, someone that had been with Polanski since his short films. And I thank you, Lee, for dragging up those short films that I hadn't seen and I would never have thought of seeing. And I thought they were absolutely fascinating, yeah. the Roman Polanski shorts, to see the development of a filmmaker. You can actually see his 
marked development really quickly and his, his film exploration through those shorts. I haven't necessarily seen this talked a lot about in Polanski films, but he has a really strong queer element in his films. Mm. He often has a lot of cross-dressing, sort of effete characters or possibly gay characters, and they came out a lot in that... Um, came out, pardon the pun, in those short works. That Man and uh, Two Men in a Wardrobe, which was his first film felt like it had gay undertones running right throughout it. Mm. And then you get to something like Cul-de-sac, which we'll get to in a minute, which literally has one of the characters dressing up her husband in in drag, essentially. Um, But there's always these little elements of that through Polanski, and the tenant, Polanski himself, Mm. um, starts cross-dressing in that... (laughs) Well, he went from that to uh, to repulsion in '62, uh, shot in England about a uh, a woman repulsed um, by her sister's boyfriend and by sex in general. But it's it's weird the way film has changed because. This film was written, Repulsion was written, so they could make cul-de-sac. They wrote it to be a commercial hit, so they could make the film they wanted to make, which is just... Because P- P- Polanski wasn't so into Repulsion as a film. He from didn't one like over. it. He said it no. was sloppy. He said which the special effects were sloppy. Absolutely unbelievable <laughs> to say that. That was yeah. an incredibly tight, surreal film. And we'll go to um, Cul-de-sac next, but we, you see it. I think the Repulsion is definitely his most surrealist film. I mean, doesn't it even have the eye sequence, the um, Ancien Andalou, the reference to that film mm. at the start with the, with the eye? It, it, he actually directly references surrealists with it. But Knife in the Water is more of the absurdist style of... And a lot of the absurdist stuff came out in his short films as well. But he uses this space in the most amazing way. And that contorted view of the idea of just creating, you know, Length of space, contorted fisheye lenses, everything in this rotting apartment was quite incredible. But he he manages, what I like about Polanski is he presents this total revulsion and repulsion, to appropriate that title. But he understands that you can't just serve people that, you can't just give people the dark. So you get Catherine Deneuve as well, who's someone who everyone will be happy to look at across a dark film for the whole thing. And this is, I think this is the important, the juggling act that filmmakers of this type have to play, which is you can't just serve something that's so dark to people. They'll just turn off. You need to bring some other elements in. And he creates such beautiful mise-en-scene. Polanski is the best director in terms of framing and composition of frame. He creates little mini artworks constantly without interrupting the story. They're beautifully seamlessly interacted into the story. So this is all the stuff that sweetens it so we can actually deal with the darkness and we can process it without turning off and going, that's too much, I'm going to go away. There is such a lot of um, black humour in his films too, isn't there? Like just little snippets that that are just genius. Like even in Knife in the Water, there's that blow-up crocodile that's going on and, you know, the woman's playing with this blow-up crocodile in the ocean in the distance while the two men are fighting with a knife and it's just so absurd, so funny, so kind of sweet in with the sour. Yeah, yeah, and he works that in with um, with sound effects as well. He'll bring up sort of innocuous sound effects and, you know, whether it's a dripping or the crushing of a ping-pong ball or something, just ludicrous noises and really amplify them to play them into the comedy of the scene. Dark comedy usually, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
He's incredible at mise-en-scene, at montage, at shot composition. You could argue that his Macbeth was the first truly cinematic Shakespeare where it wasn't just a respectful shooting of the text. Mm. Like, he really brought something new to that. Yes, yes, yeah, I think so. And he, and taking it from the stage, he seems to like to work with work that is um, created for the stage but then turn it into a purely cinematic form. Yeah, he, he's big on more the single locations, so... Carnage. Carnage. Death and the Maiden. Death and the Maiden. Uh, Venus in Fur. Fur, yes. Like actors in a single location. Like as much as he loves genre and he loves sweeping locations and so on, he, he's happy to stick you in a room and just have actors go at one another. Exactly. I think Cul-de-Sac's one of um, the films he's most proud of. Like he's often said that he thought that was his most fully cinematic film, especially to date. I guess it was only his third feature, is that right? Yes, um, only his third. It's crazy. such a crazy, accomplished, original film, isn't it? Yeah. These these first three films also are the three black and white films that he makes. And 1966, that's, you know, we're, we're talking, it's quite late to be still making black and white cinema. Mm. It suits his European sensibilities. He's very, very European in his styling and in his psychology, I guess you could say. But I think that it is so incredibly beautiful. These three films, like going from Knife in the Water to Repulsion to Cul-de-Sac in the black and white look. But it, this is completely a absurdist theatre, this film. It's on the page. I'd be really interested to read it because I cannot imagine reading this film on the page and seeing it work. But it is a film that comes out in the direction and the performances. Yeah. But it is a true ensemble sort of absurdist theatre caper comedy, really. And those first three films are very much about an outsider disrupting a family unit. Yeah. You could say that probably stems from Polanski's childhood as well you know Mm. you can see how that was his whole family unit was constantly disrupted not only that he talked about in a film memoir um, remember that he sort of turned on his father after the war when his father married very quickly and he felt that his father had betrayed his mother so it was like he never managed to get his family unit back together Mm. so yeah that personal really does come out very strongly in these films that subtle humour of Lansky's, even when he sort of does things that are far bigger and more farcical, like the next film, The Fearless Vampire Killers. Yes. There is a subtlety to the humour that there's just little moments that come in. It's like one of the vampires, someone comes at them with a cross and they're a Jewish or the oy vey or but, something. But boy, have you got the wrong vampire. Yeah, boy, have you got the <laughs> wrong vampire. Best line of the film. Yes, I love. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That feels like a real spoof of Hammer horrors, like that, that is like that specific type of horror film that they're really parroting, and that. But also some amazing effects work, like creating two rooms, pretending the doorway between the room is a mirror, and then having three body doubles so that there's no reflection of this crowd of vampires behind them. It's extraordinary effects work and very, very creative and very effective. It's a charming film and it's enjoyable, but it's clunky, mm. you know. And this is where I think this is a first Plansky feature that just felt a little bit clunky. And I think it was actually compromised on what he wanted to do, mm. even though I thoroughly enjoyed it and it was a lot of fun. It's talked a lot about in terms of having Sharon Tate in it. And yeah. this is where 
through this film that their relationship started and it seems that Plansky likes to put himself in that role when he puts himself in his own films. Even in the in the short films there was one where I think it was called The Fat and the Lean with um, yeah. Polanski playing the lean and it was very much that kind of jester-like character, very physical, a bit of a klutz and, you know, he plays it here and I think you you, you feel a happiness through this film where he is at a place where he is at probably his most happy and Mm. that's the personal that does come out of this film. Yeah, it's definitely the Hammer spoof. Not as good as the Hammer films themselves for me, but anyway, you know. (laughs) And so then he goes from that to uh, Rosemary's Baby in 68. It's a perfect film for me. I find it's absolutely perfect and it has these uh, remarkable surreal elements that largely come through that basically her insemination by the the devil um, and the dream sequences that go along with it that I'd heard were taken from Polanski's experiences with Sharon Tate tripping basically. But however Polanski's got these dream sequences and they creep up a few times in his films whether as a dream or as a skewed reality his surrealist bent that are just remarkable. They're some of the most remarkable sequences that I've ever seen. Mm. And I don't know, dream sequences are hard to pull off. They can seem really, really corny and just cliched and that whole, oh my God, it was just a dream, sort of waking up from. Polanski's films are very much products of their time and he is a product of his time as well. I mean, this is not a film for women's liberation. This film does take a what should be a lovely, loving relationship or seems to start that way and completely contorts it. Well, his, his next two films were Macbeth in 71 and What in 72. <laughs> yes. Interesting mix of films. Yeah. What was a very what? strange... <laughs> yeah. Question mark. Everyone needs to know there's a question mark at the end there of that There is a title. question mark. Uh, there was a question mark at the end of me when I was watching the film. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a weird film. It's basically... I don't know. There's a bit of an Alice in Wonderland quality to it. I mean, it's basically a woman getting repeatedly assaulted and harassed, and it kind of seems played for laughs. And then at the end, she's aware that she's in a film. I I don't know what's happening with this film. I have no idea what's happening in this film. Strangely, though, I went into it thinking, because there's a whole lot of talk about the misogyny around this film, and Sydney Rome, who's the the actress who um, plays the woman who who speaks with this little voice like this the whole way through it, and is basically presented as a bimbo until she sits down and plays Mozart beautifully, (laughs) which is part of the conflict of this character you just go okay all right so she's not quite what we're seeing on the on the screen apart from constantly being sexually assaulted in some way she also is constantly trying to keep her clothes on or find her clothes she mm. loses her clothes constantly through this film another very absurdist setup i think he was trying to parallel cul-de-sac in this in some way but make it more of a sexual romp shall we say. Although you never really see proper sex in this film. It's all just kind of vaudevillian humping, if Mm. there's anything, if you know what I mean. I was thinking I was going to hate it, but for some reason I didn't. I felt that there was something else going on here. I don't know what it is. (laughs) I need to think about it some more. I might change my mind about it, let's just say. (laughs) Well, then we get to the big one in 74, Chinatown. Yeah, Chinatown is uh, a huge favourite of mine. What do you think of it, Lee? I want to bring you in and and Rochelle. 
It's 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 a classic. Uh, I I adore it, and no matter how many times I see it, it, it holds up. It's one of the great noirs of all time, and I think it it manages to engage in what makes noirs work, but also sort of put a new twist on them and comment on them on the darkness that could never really be explored back in the days of Bogart. Yeah, I I really loved this film, and I think. I just watched it again recently and I loved it so much more than I did when I first saw it and I didn't understand noir when I first saw it. I just knew it was a great film. I was a very young woman and I was, thought this is a classic. But now I watch it, it's so beautiful. It's so noir and yet it's in colour and yet it's, you know, it's Jack Nicholson at, at his most kind of complicated and appealing and it's a very beautiful film. Like, you know, Polanski's known for his interiors and his very kind of confined setups, but this has some really great exterior scenes and some great sort of bursts of action as well. Yeah. That are just so beautifully choreographed. It is an incredibly stunning looking film. And I think um, Polanski's not really known for romance, but somehow it does come. It does come out really lovely in this film. And you guys have said that in terms of doing a noir and noir, we think of black and white and Roman Polanski's so good at black and white films, yet this is an incredibly colourful noir. Yet there is absolutely no denying that it is film noir. I think everyone who watches it would see that. And that is a remarkable, you know, aesthetic undertaking to be able to do that. Perfectly paced, perfectly shot, a perfect movie. Mm. Simply a perfect movie. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that was his last film he made in America before he... Uh... Before he got himself into trouble, mm. Roman. Keep it in your pants, Roman, I say. <laughs> <laughs> Bit late with that advice, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very, yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, and, and uh, his next film was The Tenant in 76, which he starred in. Uh, I find that nearly every filmmaker we talk about on this show has their Hitchcock film. And yes. um, here, you know, The Tenant is his rear window vertigo psycho mashup. Uh, yeah, do you so, so you would say that more than something like Fearless Vampire Killers, for example? Yeah, well, because I got more of a, of a Hammer vibe from that. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. All right. Or what? Or what? What, what? Are we about to do an Abbott and Costello routine? No, yes, we are. We are. What? Question mark. Yeah, The Tenant. The Tenant is um, seen as his unofficial third film in his apartment trilogy. The first film being Repulsion, the second film being Rosemary's Baby, and the third film being The the Tenant. Whereas I think you come off something of being so tight and so well-crafted as Chinatown, the, The Tenant is kind of a little loopy. It's a little bit unhinged. It's not an uninteresting film, but I do think that maybe it, it plays into Polanski's state of mind at that time, which is kind of a little scattered and not all there. It's something that I find hard to hold on to as a film. Like, you don't take it away as a full concept. Mm. It just sort of comes back to me in, in fragments, if you know what I mean. Something I was wanting to ask you is, what do you make of Polanski as an actor? Yeah, Polanski as an actor is, I, I just see him as himself. That's why, you know, I said that he, it can be some people if they have problems with 
Polanski the person, to see him in his films, he's still Polanski the person. But he did start, Polanski did start his career really at film school, acting in films. He acted in a Washta film, Andrzej Washta film, who was, you know, the big Polish filmmaker of, of that time. And I think he likes being in front of the screen. That's part mm. of the, the humour. But he seems to be more of the slapstick vaudevillian comedian actor than anything else which he sort of gets on in this film in a funny sort of way. <laughs> so uh, earlier when we were talking uh, about his films, you flagged Bitter Moon, 92. Yeah, Bitter Moon. I did flag you, Bitter Moon. Are you a fan of that one? I love it. Right. I love it. I don't think it's Polanski's masterpiece, yeah. but I do... I've mentioned what I think are the masterpieces, but I do think that this is a great misunderstood movie. Well, as someone who definitely misunderstood it when he watched it the other day, I, yeah, this one didn't sit right with me. I was like, what? What's, what are you is saying this you film? didn't like the dance scene between Emmanuel Seigneur and um, Kristen Scott yes, Thomas? Yes, Kristen Scott oh Thomas. Oh my God. Oh, look, that bit I like. What a scene. I loved it, and I even loved the choice of the Roxy Music song there. I mean, that song, if you, you compare that to the dance sequence, Polanski does love to give Emmanuel Seigneur a dance sequence because she does come from a background as a dancer and uh, she is his wife and he is totally enamoured with her. You can tell that in the way he presents her on screen. But uh, I think he handles the melodrama incredibly well. I really liked his sense of humour in this film and even to that idea of the farcical sexual relationship that went from something pure to the the absolute boredom and how he worked that, which was something that comes out in Watt as well. So it's interesting. You can see that he's taken stuff from Watt and has put it in here, which is probably part of the reason I found it fascinating. And also the claustrophobia that Polanski can play up so well that's been played up in Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby, stuff like that. The claustrophobia in um, Bitter Moon that's on the boat, which harks right back to The Knife in the Water, his first feature as well. The film went on a bit beyond what it should have. It could have ended a little earlier. But overall, I think this is kind of Plansky's humour and melodrama at its best. Well, it's, yeah, it's this, this sort of interesting late 80s through the 90s uh, period where he's not making as many films, but, and some of them are really good, like Death and the Maiden, and I, I really liked Frantic and, and yes. Tess, and some are very, very disposable, like The Ninth Gate and Pirates, I would say. Would you say The Ninth Gate is that disposable? See, I think The Ninth Gate was, is a film of two halves. Mm. I thought the first half was excellent and it's got one of the best credit sequences and credit music sequences that um, I've come across in cinema. I remember getting really excited when it started. But then it devolves into this kind of hammy monsterdom that's kind it's very of, direct to video, kind of like there was sort of late nineties. There were a lot of those sort of occultish, bad special effects. Films, yeah, and it just feels like it could it could disappear into any one of those. It would have been a far better movie if he had have just kept with suggestion rather than got so explicit. Mm. Let's just say. But and it kind of feels like maybe he's on, he's waning at this point. But then the pianist in two thousand and two, which I know. is just extra, I mean, it's the came sort of out film, of nowhere, didn't it? Yeah, really? I think Spielberg wanted him to make uh, Schindler's List originally, and he felt he couldn't do it. It was too raw. It was too, and that was like only ten years earlier or so, maybe even less. But with the pianist, he was able to tell a Holocaust story that, based on what we know of his biography, 
is as much about him as it is about the the guy you know who it's a, a story about, a guy caught in the um, the Nazi invasion of uh, of Poland. And I mean, it's an undeniably powerful work. It, it hit me as hard watching it the other day as it did when it first came out. It's just. Yeah, it's amazing. I think it's an incredibly moving, difficult, relevant, beautiful, horrifying. You know, it's it's got everything in there. It's a work of art, and it is a work of art. I, I particularly like the way that the storytelling progresses in this, and it goes literally into being a silent film, mm. which I think is incredibly clever because people aren't, apart from the fact that the artist won an Academy Award in recent years, people aren't really receptive to silent movies in this day and age. But that film, you just find yourself in a silent film without actually realising it. And it's not a stylistic device. It's actually part of that progression of the story and the isolation of the character. I think that may be what didn't work for Polanski, and I'm putting words in his mouth here and I don't know him. It was about a hero, Schindler's List, or the, the creation of a hero, and this yeah. film is not about heroics at all. Adrian Brody's character survives through pure luck, yeah. and that's all, and he's not even physically strong or necessarily smarter than anyone else. It's just flailing his way through and he manages to come out the other side, which is part of the utter horror of this movie, that, you know, the survivors of that particular time and incidents in terms of... as part of the Holocaust just happen to survive. Mm. And would you say that this film's kind of one of his more stylistically simple. It kind of starts off so straightforward. There's none of his flourishes. There's none of his humour. There's, It's almost traditional classic filmmaking. Yes, that... it's true. Yeah, we've, you know, talking about Plansky as being a surrealist and observist filmmaker, this is completely stripped of all those types of stylistic devices. This is definitely straightforward narrative storytelling and he can do that as well it's like he can choose in terms of the subject matter when it is the correct moment to use those kind of devices like even something like Oliver Twist is very Mm. and and Tess are very straightforward narrative films they're not absurdist or surrealist films Oliver Twist I don't actually think it's as bad as I've I've read some critics (laughs) have said it's got great production design and a great score and but it kind of feels like it exists because Ben Kingsley had to play Fagin at some point. It was, yes. it was predestined and it was like, well, someone has to make this film. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But I noticed that was picked out in the film memoir documentary as one of his personal movies by the fact of him being, I guess, a child disenfranchised from family and stuck in poverty uh, so that he found more to relate to in Oliver Twist than we might realise. Even in something like Macbeth, I think Polanski did that film because he thought that there was no way people could make correlations between Macbeth and the Tate murders, that he could distance Mm. himself from that event. But people saw in the violence of the killings, especially knife killings, which was what is now famously known as the Tate murders, were people really saw what he had gone through in, in that well, since Oliver Twist, his last decade has included The Ghost Rider in 2010, Carnage in 2011, Venus in Fur in 2013. He's got another one called Based on the True Story, which I think he played at Cannes and is yet to come out here. But Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're more hit than miss, I think. Very small-scale character pieces. He's toned down in later years. His stylistic flourishes. 
Um, is this just the, and you know, I'd hate to say it, but is this because he's now an old man? He's probably getting tired. Energy. Could be. Like, I mean, that happens with a lot of artists. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very very likely and his interests have shifted. But something that uh, I think his last film before the most recent one that we haven't had a chance to see here is Venus in Fur, mm. <laughs> which... I really didn't like at all. I didn't the first time, and then I rewatching it. I really liked it this time. Really? Around. Yeah, okay. I don't know why it shifted, but it, it just worked for me this time around. I found it incredibly boring. Mm. Polanski's so absolutely in love with her, a senior, and mm. I don't think she's necessarily the world's greatest actress. And he has her play a very great actress. <laughs> Yeah, he has She's a actress. <laughs> but and he has a dance again, and she does the same dance moves, and I'm sure she can do other dance moves other than them. Uh, it felt like an old man not being able to get it up. Oh, wow. well, it's yeah. telling that not only did he cast his wife as the actress, but Al, Al Merrick looks exactly like him. Oh, so like him. Maybe yeah, that's like why I was more interested the second time. Yeah, like, it's yeah, off-putting. There's something very telling in that. That might be as autobiographical, unintentionally, as Rosemary's Baby or The Pianist, you know. Yeah. Well, I think he is very aware of that blurring between his, his personal and professional because if you read the first page of his autobiography, he talks about the idea of fantasy and reality and being very confused. Mm. So... I think we can say even Pirates is very yeah. <laughs> Roman Polanski. <laughs> well, we have covered so much ground and it feels like we could have kept going so much longer and talked about him so much more and everything surrounding it. But Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to indulge in this controversial <laughs> subject matter. <laughs> it's been fun. It it's has. been fun, hyphen, confronting, hyphen, confusing hyphen exhilarating <laughs> how about that perfect <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month <laughs> <laughs>